Welcome to the American Soldier Podcast. My name is Douglas Terrell. This is a podcast to hear important stories told by actual veterans and military families. My hope and goal is that this podcast can give a voice to our veterans and provide a path for healing and help society better understand the sacrifices that they and their families have given for us and our freedoms. Today's story is with Chief Warrant Officer 5, Marine Gunner Mike Musselman, a.k.a. Gunner. Gunner was an infantryman for 25 years of his 30 years with the Marine Corps. He has three deployments to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. The story that has always been inside of me that I know I needed to address, especially since the withdrawal of Afghanistan, it was the story that we've moved on, yet I know these scars are as vivid as they were yesterday for a lot of vets. And then that gentleman in New Jersey who came up to me and said he was really emotional and he was really thanking me. And he said, I just, I get so upset because sometimes I walk around in a jeans and t-shirt and no one knows what I've done and it pisses me off. And so I feel like, you know, I need to tell that story. It's a story that has to be told and has to be reminded. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to understand where that guy said to you where he's coming from, because I guess I think what he maybe left out was it doesn't piss him off that no one knows who he is. It pisses him off. Um, you know, it's like a lot of guys we talk to, it's the feeling of betrayal. Yeah. By our country, by the one thing that we devoted our lives to. I devoted 31 years to this country. I believe in this country. I'm, I'm the most proud patriotic American you ever come across. However, there came that time where I was all in and I found out that they didn't care. So they, it's like being you a, say they, who's they? The the country. But more specifically, the country, you mean government, the military, or the everyone or both. Yeah. It was then you really see like the military didn't care. The guys that I sure, you know, the generals, the people I took orders from, they didn't care. In the end, it just didn't matter anymore. And so that's my anger. That's why I got, I was really pissed. I, I imagine. Was, oh, and then that's where I devoted my anger towards. I got a phone call from a buddy saying, hey, I need some friends that need to get out. Can you help me? I, I don't know what I can do. You mean then, Afghans? Yeah. Yeah. And so Afghan Terps, um, yep. interpreters, their brothers and their sisters and their kids. And then, so I was, well, okay, that's an easy deal. Like these guys served, they served alongside of us. They did more than most Americans did. And they weren't even Americans for America. Yeah, we owe it to them. So I called some State Department guys that I knew and they were like, I'm sorry, nothing we could do. And then it was really, that was really like, okay, wait a second. I just been betrayed by my military and by my government by pulling out and just walking away from all of this as if it didn't matter. And now you're telling me that those people that put their life on the line with a promise from us that said, if you do this, we promise that we'll be with you all along as a government, as a country, as the red, white, and blue, the American spirit, we say this, and then they look at you and go, yeah, basically in a nutshell. Yeah. And it was, I think at that moment, a lot of us felt like everything we believed in that this country was, it wasn't. And that was the hard, sickening, like, where did, what went wrong? What, where did we go? And I didn't want to get into politics, but okay, it was like, we got to get these guys out. And yeah. unfortunately, as much, I know it's a phrase that everyone says, I don't want to get into politics, but 
Unfortunately, it is. That's what it is. It is. It, it comes is. down to politics. And so I became very, a lot of things changed in my life after that moment. After Afghanistan, we pulled out. Like how? My relationships with fr- friends and family. Because my family, my brothers and my sisters mostly are more liberal than I am, of course. And they have different viewpoints on things. And they sided with all that stuff. Did they serve? It really? Huh? Uh, do any, did any of them serve? No, none of them. Yeah. Complete different so point they, of view. Yeah. So they sided with it. And I really was like, okay, I love you. I'm not going to go down this road. I'm not. But it, it, things just kept pushing more and more towards that. And finally, it, you know, I, I got upset and I just said, you know what? I have more respect from the guys I killed in as my enemy than I have for you right now, because at least they stood up for something they believed in, not what they think they, you know, just some fundamental ideology that they don't even understand. And I said, these people at least went all the way through. You guys, it's like the wind. The wind shifts, they do whatever. And that's what really, really upset. I really got upset. Sure. Um, Why don't we go back a little bit and tell me, why'd you get into military? How old were you? And and just tell me like the process to work where we're at, where you're at now as a retired soldier. I really had no intentions to join the military. I came from your family. Let me me go even further. Where's your family from? Are you Mexican American? Minnesota. So I my dad's from Minnesota and my mom's from San Diego. And that's where they met. My dad was in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Okay. But I didn't know that. I really didn't because he didn't talk about it when we were kids. So I didn't know he served. And uh, I just he was my dad. But uh, we lived in I born in San Diego. Then I was raised in Minnesota, went to school and everything there. And I really, again, no intentions to join the military. I was more of a mechanical kind of person. I liked things in part, put things back together. I wasn't into guns. I wasn't into shooting and running around hunting. I hunted maybe two or three times. I was a big fisherman though. I like fishing. And then I like science. I was really good in science and math. And so my intention was I was going to be a marine biologist, study oceanography, being a big environmentalist, and try and save the wells. That was my dream. I don't know what it changed, but right when I got out of high school and I that first couple semesters in in, in a college environment, where'd you go to high school? Really Minnesota changed. or San Diego? San Diego. Okay. And it really changed. And I was like, okay, I this is not challenging. This is a joke. It's just. It was, didn't even feel real. Really, it was just go there. And this was in the early mid-80s. So it was just have fun, drink a lot of beer, and just do stupid stuff. And then, and I was really detached from the people that were teaching me because they didn't care. They didn't know who I was. They weren't invested in me. And so I was really, again, put off by that. And I'm not going to invest my time in you. I don't know what you're talking about. And I pushed away from that. And then one day I saw... I was down by Marine Corps training, the Marine Corps MCRD down there, and I saw these guys running around doing crazy shit on these obstacle courses. And I was like, what the hell is that? So I went and talked to a couple guys. I watched it, and that was really when you could just walk on the base. And I remember walking up to a Marine and saying, hey, how do I join this? How do I become whatever you guys are? And he was looking at me like, who the hell are you? Are you a skinny kid or you're a big kid or – no, I was, um, I'm, I've always been about six foot tall, weighed about, uh, yeah, 180 pounds. And so he was like, Hey, if you're serious, got to talk to a recruiter. Okay. How can I find, because I had no idea 
right? I didn't know this world existed. And but your dad didn't have your dad didn't have like pictures of him in Vietnam or no, no, no so, flag or anything. No, um, all in all tucked away. And so what happened was when I joined, I didn't tell my parents at first. I just joined, went to boot camp. I was about in the middle of boot camp, and they're like, "Hey, you need to write a letter home to your parents." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." You're already at boot camp and you haven't told them? Yeah, I was already there probably two, three weeks into it. Um, <laughs> what did you think? Did you not think your parents were going to be like, hey, man, has anybody seen Mike? <laughs> no, and that was the other problem. So I always tell everybody has adversity through their life. Yeah. We all have adversity. We all have some yeah. sorts of trauma. Mine was, I was, I wouldn't say neglected, but my parents were so busy with their own lives. We could do whatever we wanted. What, what did your parents do? My parent, architectural draftsman, stockbroker. My mom was a CPA, an accountant for Toro, a huge company. Your dad was a stockbroker? Yeah, he did that. He dabbled in that, but he was an architectural draftsman. And so he he was like way up. They would draw these crazy things, and then their company would build them and sell the patent and make hundreds of millions of dollars. So he made good they money. They come up with these ideas. And so it was his team that, another story real quick, but his team had developed this, the pizza ovens that you put the pizza on and it rolls through. Yeah. Because they used to bake capacitors flat onto a motherboard. And that's, it was an ultraviolet machine that did the same thing. And they were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we get pizza within five minutes? So they designed this thing and then they sold it. And then the company did made. You, did you grow up with money? Not so much. Yeah. I, my parents made us work our ass off for it. Because I only ask, just a lot of times you hear these stories of guys who join and they had no other choice. And I've interviewed a lot of mm, them, but no, I, you were like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I didn't go without, put it that way. I, if I wanted something, I did it. Yeah. And then, did your pops, did your dad see combat in Vietnam? Is that why he didn't talk about it? Oh yeah. It? Yeah. He saw, what, he did two tours. And what and he, so, what he do? He was an infantryman. Wow. And so when I joined the Marine Corps and became an infantryman, so I graduated boot camp. They don't, my mom comes, my dad doesn't come. And so I get back home and my dad and me don't talk for six years. He told you don't talk for six years? We got into a big argument over this oh. whole thing. I'm throwing my life away. You're an idiot. And so we didn't talk for six years. Wow. And so I was finally a sergeant when I came back and I said, hey, dad. And then I'm, I was, I'm not going to play this game anymore. We talked. And then everything then opened up. Then he really told me, you know, he we did all this stuff. And then he showed me all this stuff and he talked about it. I saw he, he was Marine too or Army? Yeah, Marine. Marine. And where did he fight in Vietnam? He fought up by um, the DMZ. So he was there during the Tet Offensive. Oh, wow. And so he was with uh, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, and then 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um, but there were, he lost a lot of guys, blames himself. He was a senior, he was a sergeant, staff sergeant, senior squad leader, lost a lot of his guys and didn't think that, you know, he did enough. That was his mental state. And then yeah. he just suppressed it his whole life. Did he drink? No. He took all that anger. He built things. Like I said, he, when he, if he wasn't working, he was building choppers, race cars, dragsters. Oh. And the guy could do it like with, out of just scrap. I mean, yeah. it was just, it was, yeah, he was just really immensely talented. Yeah. yeah. 
perfect people time to be in California too to do all that stuff because California was exploding with that stuff at that time. He, we were living in Minnesota, so he's oh, Minnesota. He Minnesota. Yeah, and so he was part of a drag racing team that would just he was all over the place because he. I guess that's where he devoted all of that stuff. He pushed towards that creative side. Well, that's better than uh, other drinking than to talk or, about it. Drinking or drugs? Yeah, he didn't drink. He didn't drink. I he drank beer, but I've never seen him my whole life. My dad never buzzed. My mom, on the other hand, yeah, she drank wine like crazy. I'd see her like <laughs> hammered, but um, my dad, not so much. But so we didn't talk. We joined the Marine Corps, and then we come to terms with it, and then we talk, and then he gets more involved with the whole thing, other veterans, and gets re- reunited with some of the guys that he didn't know is still alive. And his whole life is better now. He's still alive. Uh, yeah, he's still alive. Mom and dad, my mom passed away a year ago. So he's still alive and he lives up in a cabin in northern Wisconsin. So we talk and he's involved grandchildren and stuff like that, but he's not a very touchy feely, open the heart kind of, he's still withdrawn. I would imagine his time in Vietnam had something to do with that. Yeah. It forever scars you. Yeah. So if you don't, and I, you know, I said, I might use my dad as an example. If you don't deal with it right away, it gets worse when you get older and you really, there's no coming back from that. Yeah. It mushrooms. You yeah. You can't get back to your normal. Cause I hate using that word. There's no such thing, but no, I what know you it. used to be. It was hard for that. So, so hard for that generation. Yeah, so I was in the infantry my whole time. And then it was right after the war or right after the towers were hit. I had then applied to be what we call in the Marine Corps a Marine gunner. It's a special term. I don't know if you can see over my shoulder. There's a bursting bomb on the wall. Oh, we okay. wear, I thought it was a pineapple. <laughs> we, yeah. Everybody says that. We wear a bursting bomb on our left collar and we're a chief warrant officer on our right. Okay. What that is, that makes us infantry weapons specialists. So we're technical specialists within the infantry. So we never leave the infantry once you become a, a gunner. And so our term is gunner and uh, it's an enduring term. So you earn the right. And if a big, you walk with a pretty big swag when you, sure. you know, it's, you're the gunner. And, yeah. A lot of guys are so, depending on you. Yeah. Cause you're, you have, as a battalion gunner, you're responsible for about a thousand guys, the training, the evaluation, making sure that they're ready to fight. And so I became a gunner, went to war, came back. And I initially did my tours in Iraq. So I was in the invasion in 2003. Then I came right back six months later, and I was back again with a different battalion. Then I came back another six months later, and I was with another battalion. So it was three really quick successive deployments during really the worst time. So we always laughed with, oh, yeah, I lucked out. I got there during this time and that time, the Battle of Fallujah. I was there in the Battle of Fallujah in 2004. I'm I sure was there knew. during the. Go I, I was just going to say, I'm sure you knew when 9 11 happened, you're like, you, you knew right off the bat, I'm, we're going yeah, to. Yeah, that's an attack. Yeah. We're going. My to. mom, we're, my wife woke me up. I actually woke up and made a TV on the wall and I was waking up and I looked up and. She, before I could say something, she goes, oh, they're saying a plane hit the World Trade Center. And I looked at it, and because I'd been to the World Trade Center, and I'm like, that's not a plane. And she goes, no, they said it's, she said it's a commuter plane. Yeah, everybody thought it was a Cessna. Yeah, and I'm like, I just looked at it real quick, and I said, that's not a, 
that's not a commuter plane. And she goes, what? And I said, that's not a commuter plane. I said, that picture you're showing you, those are windows. Those things are huge in real life. That's an air, that's a, that's an airliner. That's gotta be at least an airliner. And then the second plane hit right there. And I jumped out of bed and then we both stood there. Where were you at? Look, I was in Tustin, California in my house. And I said, we're under attack. That was the first thing I said to her. I said, we're under attack. I got to go. Got dressed, got in the truck, drove back to base. And as soon as I got back there, everybody's watching the TV and I talking to the colonel and I'm like, he's, yeah. So we were right into training, getting ready to go. One of my companies was the first unit there. Bravo Company, First Light Armored Constance was in Afghanistan and took Kandahar within in that October. So we were, we knew it was just a matter of time. And then we got the word that we were going to go. And then we just planned for war and we got on ships. And that was in 2003 in December, we left the West Coast, the First Marine Division. And it was, we talked about it because I remember seeing there was probably about 40 surface ships all in formation going across the Pacific. And it was this, wow, this once would have been like been in World War II or even Korea. To yeah. see an invasion force going across. It was pretty awe-inspiring. And aircraft carriers, assault ships, destroyers, cruisers. No, that's the, the thing about family. the U.S. military, and I've heard this from you know other vets I've talked to, is that you know when that arm gets going, the United States military arm gets going, it's like no other. It's it's a sight to see, and it's, it's I guess with a lot of yeah, people get addicted to it. You know the machinery of it, the sounds, the intensity, the just the logistic, the yeah. perfect precision logistics of everything moving together like clockwork. Yeah, it's got to be amazing to be part of. So that you're watch, part of it. Yeah, when you watch movies and the one with Tom Hanks, uh, or, Private uh, Ryan, when they're getting ready to jump and they got the planes and they're doing all this stuff, and or when they're on the water or Band of Brothers and you're watching this stuff and you like to see C-47s taken off on the runway, or you're watching Band of Brothers or uh, same Private Ryan, they're coming across the ocean. You need just, those memories come back, and those are good memories. All right, yeah. wow, I'm. I can understand what he's feeling like. Is brotherhood memory part of something so much bigger than him? Yeah, and that was that feeling. Like you're just this big, and there's so much. You're part of something much greater than you. This is awesome. So we got over there and we did all our stuff there. But Afghanistan was different. So you come back from Iraq. What year when you come back? You you come back. I can't remember that we go to Iraq in 2003, and we come back. We stay there for a long time as well. But so what's your journey th- before you go into Afghanistan? So what do you be? Oh, so I do three combat tours in Iraq, literally 2004, 2004, 2005, 2005, 2006. As a gunner? As a gunner. Wow. And so seven month tours, each one of them. And then I'm in the second tour or yeah, second tour in Fallujah. I'm blown up pretty bad. Fallujah uh, is in Iraq, though. Yeah, yeah. I get blown up. You get and, blown up by an IED. Oh, yeah, a really bad IED. I had just gotten out of the truck, my gun truck, and there was an IED right there, and I saw it. And before I could say anything, it was just I saw the three stacked nose fuses of the artillery rounds uh, in the distance, and I could just see them poking out of the wall. And I did that wince because I knew it was just like this thing's gonna go, and boom, it went. And everything just went quiet. So you were and in a truck or you're, what was going I on? I just got now. I just got out, got of, the out truck. of the truck. Yeah, put my helmet on, was put my M4 on my neck. 
I closed the door to my armored Humvee. And when I closed the door, I saw the noses of the artillery rounds sticking out behind the corner. On and the floor, like, on the wall, or what? On the ground. Yeah, on the ground. It was like a little alleyway. They were just right on the corner. I could see the noses literally like poking out like that. And how, what made it go off? Did you truck go over it or? No, they were watching us. Uh. And so, yeah, because we weren't in front of it. So I, but it was just one of those feelings like, oh shit, this is going to be bad. And it was, boom, it went off. The wall that it was behind tamped a lot of the explosive force. Um, but the blast over pressure knocked the shit out of him. And so I came to, and I was sitting down, I was covered in dirt. And I remember opening my eyes, looking around, and I could see everybody firing. And I couldn't hear it yet. And both sides were firing. Yeah, they were shooting at us. It was an ambush. They were trying to ambush us. And we were returning fire. And I was senior guy there, but they were operating as my guys were operating as clockwork. They knew what to do. And the corpsman had come running to me, my medical guy, and he was trying to pick me up. And I remember looking up at him. And just dirt and grime and shit in my eyes. I couldn't see. And it was just hot. And I mean, just, uh, and he picked me up and was giving me a stand up, but I couldn't stand up. I was, I don't okay. know. It was that feeling of, I couldn't feel my legs. I was yeah. just, yeah, I was, I, I was, yeah, you got out of, you got your ass beat by the shock. Yeah. So I got the, it was, the, I found out later, it was the concussive blast that hit my head and put me up against the wall. And thank goodness and so, you had your helmet on. Yeah, yeah. They like they said they would I would have died. There was no doubt about it. It would have been it would have been all over with. Um, because the black when I hit the back of the wall, it it damaged my helmet, a Kevlar helmet. So I mean, it was a pretty good force. I wasn't feeling really great, but I was okay. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't find out until this later, much later, that the damage had caused bleeding within my brain. So when I got back from that deployment, I knew something was wrong. I just didn't feel right. Something was off. And it was probably about eight or nine months into that I realized, because me and my wife would have these arguments. And she would say, we just talked about that. No, I'm like, I don't know what you about. And she'd say, no, we just talked about that. What is wrong with you? We just talked about an hour about that. And it was like, I'm not stupid. We didn't talk about that. We had this thing going on. And finally, she recorded me one time when I denied, you know, like bullshit. And then she showed me recording. It was like, whoa, shit, there's something wrong with me. Because I don't remember even having that conversation. And now she showed me a recording of that, what took place. So when I got in my truck and was driving to work and works 20 minutes away, I'm on the I-5. You've been to California. Yeah. So I'm living in Dana Point area, Camp Pendleton. I get on the five. I literally got to go like 20 minutes down to five, get off on Christianos and I'm on base. I get in my truck. I remember looking over my left shoulder, merging onto the freeway. As I looked forward, I remember blinking. And within a blink, I mean, a blink of time, I hear a rap on my window. And I look over and I roll down my window and there's a Border Patrol agent. And I'm now utterly confused. What the hell? Why is there a Border Patrol agent on my vehicle? And he said, sir are you okay? And I'm in camis. He's like, are you okay? Uh, yeah. Why would you be asking me if I'm okay? And he goes, because you're trying to get into Mexico. And I look up and there's the fucking Mexican border right there. You're just, you had no clue where you're driving to. I, yeah, I drove 86 miles with, 
without remembering it, blacked out. Oh, wow. And so he pulled, he was really cool. He pulled me inside, said, Hey, and so again, I, you need to go to the hospital. No, I'm okay. Let's do this. How about, can you have an agent drive me up and then drive my car? So I call work and say, I'm going to be late. I had a problem. Don't tell him. And I go home and I sleep that one off next day. I go in, go see the doctor, talk to him about it. Again, downplaying as much as I can. And he's, you got some fucking serious problem, Mike. And so they send me to a clinic. I get evaluated and they come back. Yeah, you have severe tra traumatic brain injury. And they have this residue blood clot. It was just, it was a mess. So what did you do? Um, you go to surgery or what? It, it was too late. I didn't have to at that point. It wasn't bleeding. So it was just a watch, take some medication, thin the blood out, do this type of thing. Basically, uh, I had to go a bruise and you needed to let it heal. Yeah. And then physical therapy. I had to do a lot of physical therapy. Um, and then motion stuff, get my motion back. What'd your wife say? She was furious. And uh, I mean, you have kids at this time? Yeah. My daughter was in elementary school. And she was, uh, when I say furious, that's downplaying a lot, makes furious look, look, you know. And so I would tell her, hey, I had no choice. They're telling me I have to go. And I thought I was getting one over, but she knew, you know, so it was her way of being palatable, not getting, okay, fine. And then she'd always tell me, you know, like, I, I don't know if I can do another one. I don't know if this will be the last one. I'd be like, okay. But we were losing friends. And she knew their wives. And that was really hard. And I didn't understand that because I wasn't on the home front. I was over there doing my life was busy. Didn't realize what she's going through. Worrying about if she's going to get a knock on the door. Never even came to my thought process. Yeah. So I'm doing my thing. She's doing her thing. And literally it's this love hate relationship. And I felt like I was She's not going to leave me because I'm just guilting her into staying with me because I'm doing the patriotic thing and serving my country. So that was kind of that. I knew if I could just do this and everyone else home, it was the being the de detached dad because everything changes. You don't know. You come back into a new lifestyle. You Where you're constantly, you're home and it must feel surreal. But at the same time, your brain is thinking about exactly what your brothers are doing over there in the Middle East right yeah, now. It's very foreign. Home doesn't feel comfortable anymore. No. Comfortable is... In combat. Yeah. And it's a weird thing to say. Comfort is when you're hunkered down, getting shot at, and you're with people that you Depend basically lay your life down for. That's comfortable. I'm more than comfortable in that. This is not comfortable. This is alien to me. Do you still um, feel what like do that I do? Now? Huh? You still feel like that now? I a little every now and then I do. I feel lost. You get lost. Like what? And it's always say the purpose. Where's our purpose? You got to find a purpose again. Yeah. That's the hardest thing for guys who come back is finding that purpose. Yeah. And so it could be part of it. Part of my purpose is I want to live a peaceful life. Part of it is I want to be the most gracious, God serving, best person that can ever, you can ever come across to try and right a lot of those wrongs. What wrongs are you uh, talking about? Just, you know, I one of the problems I have too is we heard a lot of people that didn't, innocent people. You mean in Iraq? 
both Iraq and Afghanistan. And we called it collateral duty. I didn't like it. We'd see, or we would cause, not directly, but indirectly, the deaths of children and women and non-combatants. And that really hurts when, if you wouldn't have done that, they'd probably still be alive today. And I, you try, and you can't, it's the enemy's process too. They planted the ID in the ground, trying to get us, they got a, a innocent car. But yeah. it goes back to, we wouldn't have been there in the first place. That wouldn't have ever happened. So you do this constant battle, like with your mind. That's the hardest part of um, of why it's the main reason why a lot of guys get PTSD because, you know, they. It's not about. It's not the act of war. It's the act of unjust war that you get pulled into. That's, yeah. That it's hard to digest for a lot of guys, and so they start questioning everything from their their existence to their bravery to their if they deserve to even live. And that's where it causes a lot of the problems because they, they have a hard time forgiving themselves that of what you call collateral. You try and find, you know, I used to tell my guys in both Iraq and Afghanistan, you got to find when you're over here, we got to find beauty. We got to find things that humanize us because everything you're doing over there dehumanizes yourself. Everything. Yeah. Every day you exist over there. You're working to distance yourself from being human, to feel the feelings of compassion and love and all these stuff. You gotta, you're trying to push that stuff away. What because did you, if do you find beauty? The children. Your children. Make them smile. Huh? Your children. No, their children. Oh, their children. Oh, you're, you know, saying, when when we, you're, saying, you're saying when you're over there, you gotta find the beauty. Yeah, when you're over there, you gotta find the beauty. When it's you get home, it's easy. You flip the switch, you can turn a lot of that stuff off and just focus on because it's right there in front of you. You can touch it. But over there, you have to find the beauty every day to stay sane. Because if you start desensitizing yourself, dehumanizing yourself, because you're doing it every day, if you allow that to, to take over, bad things happen. Yeah, You make bad decisions, bad judgment calls. That's where a lot of those war crime things happen. You get angry. You want to seek revenge, not justice. You really understand the terms. You understand. You really. War makes you understand the fine line, that razor's edge of revenge and justice. Yeah. And so it's easy to go both that to the other side. It really is, and it feels good because I've been there. You you get to that side and it's, hey, we're gonna go kill these fuckers. Let's. They're none of them. We're gonna go get them. We just lost, you know, Chavez. Hey, they're not gonna get away from this. We're gonna hurt as many as we can. And you gotta slow down, take that pause, or be that leader to help them do that, which isn't always the most popular decision. What was more intense? Was Iraq more intense or Afghanistan regarding combat? Iraq was more intense because when we when I was there, it was fighting twenty four seven. You're in Fallujah, right? Yeah, that it was. was the, that was the asshole of the Middle East, right? Yeah, that was not. They always say that wars, you know, like. Um, two weeks of complete boredom and one minute of madness. Yeah. It's But Fallujah was the other way around. It was one minute of boredom and two weeks of madness. And it was nonstop crazy shit, madness, fighting, and or waiting to get into the fight because they, you know they're there. They just haven't popped yet because they always get first shot. 
Yeah, they we, have to. We always had to retaliate. We never really got the opportunity to go first. They always went first. Because you weren't really allowed to. You couldn't really. Yeah, we didn't know who the enemy was. Two dudes walking across the street in, in man dresses. You're like, okay, let them go. And then they walk across the street, and then all of a sudden pop, they pop up AKs out of their dress, and they start shooting at you. You're like, you son of a bitch. You're <laughs> gotta, cheating. It's got yeah, yeah. It's got to be the worst. I could talk yeah. about it all. It's, uh, you know, the part that I hated the most was being in the vehicles. Because you start to realize you have no control. At that point, you're in a box, you're in a can, there's bombs on the road, and they got good at putting them in there. They, you know, it's just a matter of you can't put enough armor on there to protect you from whatever they're going to use, because all they got to do is put more shit in the ground. And so it was always that the unsettling getting in the vehicle and just driving and you're in what we call Indian country, you're driving through Indian country and you're watching potholes and disrupted earth and you clinch up every time, you know, you're waiting, nothing happens in Iraq. There was a, we were driving one day and we were told not to go the route we did by our commanding, our higher commanding officer be considered. We called, we color coded our routes. Um, and this was a black route, meaning they owned it. We couldn't see it, no observation on it. And if you do go that way, you got to make sure you have air cover and your armor, you're heavily armored up. And every if you do drive the route, it's a combat. You're, you're going to combat. We weren't going to combat. We were going to go do a meeting with the army because we were taking over some battle space. We had two choices. We could go the shithead route or we could go the easy route, go through another base, come around pop out the other side and then be where the army's at. It's the boring way because nothing's going to happen. It's all controlled by U.S. forces. Do you know the analogy? Do you hear me say this a lot? Do you know the analogy between the picking and the chicken, the chicken and the pig at breakfast? You never no. heard this? No. <clears throat> at breakfast, the chicken is involved. The pig is committed. Chicken is involved. The pig. Okay. The chicken is okay. involved. The pig is committed. That's yeah. Good. So when you have breakfast, the chicken he just lays an egg. He gets delivered on a fucking day. Pig and gives the pig gives all. You don't ever want to be the pig. You always want to be the chicken. Not everybody gets to be the chicken. Someone's got to be the pig. And so that day we were all pigs. And so we'd say this to each other, like in passing, we'd say, "Hey, what are we pigs today, sir? Yeah, we're all pigs." And I tell everybody, "Hey, strap it up. This is going to be bad." No sooner did we leave the lead vehicle, I'm in the second vehicle, our lead vehicle, our Scott vehicle, an explosion goes off on the left-hand side of the truck, and it careens out of control and goes into the ditch. And no more, we don't receive any fire, nothing. And so we drive up as fast as we can. We get to the vehicle. It's got dust laying around. We run up alongside of it, and the doors are blown open on the left-hand side. So both doors, both armored doors are just hanging there. Jeez. And everybody inside is unconscious. And so we start triaging as soon as we could, pulling guys out, triaging, making sure everybody's alive. We pull Ramirez's cheeks out of the gunner seat. He's in the, on the gunner turret. We pull him out, and we notice he's got massive wound trauma through his body. And because he sits like this in that turret, the explosion came and went through his side here into his unprotected sides, not his chest plate. So we pulled him out. We knew that he was the worst of them all. 
So we threw him in my vehicle and the hospitals just back where we were at, like five minutes down the road where the army is at. So we're lucky at that aspect. So we race, we're racing back. We just said, hey, we meet everybody at the hospital, grab everybody else, we're taking Cheeks, go. We took off. And so Cheeks is on my in the back with me on the lap. What was his nickname? Cheeks? Why? Yeah. Why Cheeks? Benito Ramirez, because he had big, fat, chubby cheeks. Okay. Okay. And so he'd always smile and he had these big dash dimples. And he was from Edinburgh, Texas, down south. And he was one of the guys that you'd always see me coming and go, hey, sir, are we the pigs of the, the chicken today? I'm like, Cheeks were the pigs. He's like, ah. <laughs> so he's on my lap and the corpsman is straddling. I'm trying to do some first aid. And I'm talking to him because I could, he's still breathing. He's unconscious, but he's still there. He's moaning. And I'm like, hey, Cheeks, Cheeks, come on. And so Doc grabs, he says, hey, sir, put pressure on his side. Stop the bleeding. And so I knew it wasn't good. We got to the surgical place. We pull up real fast. They come running out. And God, they're God's angels. They get him on a gurney right away and rush him in. We're standing there. I got my hand is solid red. I got blood all over my body. And I'm just sitting there because, and I've known Cheeks for a while now. Um, and I'm sitting there just kind of still going through this, like, what the, what happened? And then the other vehicles with the other wounded guys pull up and they come out. They come out and they really say, the nurse comes out and says, I'm sorry, we lost. Cheeks. 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 And I'm like, which one? And they said, the first one, Ramirez. And I said, so I walked over to the side and I took my helmet off and I just started beating the ground with it. And so that was one of those scenarios. Um, That was one of those resonating it really bothered me and it still bothers me to this day um i have a memento of cheeks still that reminds me what is um, it he has a uh he was a 50 cal machine gunner and so in his body armor he got to fire what we call a slap round which is armor piercing you don't get to shoot him that much but he got to fire one one day a fire bunch and that was like the most exciting thing he ever did so he kept one of the bullets tucked in his body armor and so when they came out, they said, um, when he told me he died, they handed it to me and said, we can't give this back to the parents because it's ordinance. And so I said, okay. And so I held on to it. And that was, you know, 2005. And I've never, I've always had it ever since. And where was Cheeks from? It was California or Texas? Texas, Edinburgh, Texas. Edinburgh, down Edinburgh Texas. Edinburgh. Yeah. My wife is right from Edinburgh, the, Scotland. Yeah. So she's, he's right on the border. And, you know, I'm going to go one day down there and pay my respects. I you, just you, you still haven't seen his parents? No, I met him. I saw him when they came at a dedication and we talked. They don't speak very good English, but we tried to communicate. But I'm I will go. I'll go down and make that trek and see where he's resting. How old was uh, he? He was 22. 22. No family. His family? No, he wasn't married or no kids? No, he wasn't married yet. He had just gotten his citizenship. He was, that was like his most proud moment. He had came walking in and he got the letter while we were over there and said that he had been proved for his citizenship. Now he's an American citizen. Um, and that's, you know, so again, big family, not a lot of money, working family, everybody works, uh, yeah. but great people, great Americans, even though probably they're not. I could care less. Uh, no, I know what you mean. I know exactly. Yeah. They love you this know, country, man. Yeah. And, 
that's, I think, what gets lost is who these people are, you know, and what did they do and what did they give up? I always say people don't realize that what we've actually lost, the potential of what we could have become as a country, as a people, as a civilization, you know, what what could have one of these people done had you mean they got you, to live their life up? Yeah. You mean if we weren't in Iraq or in Afghanistan? Yeah. That's the amazing potential that we threw away because it's the two lives, right? The life that they were living and the life they would have lived. Yeah. Or three we lives. lost them twice. Or multiple lives, especially bad families. You have no yeah, idea. So we lose, families they we lose them twice. We lose yeah. them twice. Not just once. We lose them twice. Their potential. Um, and that's when it really started hitting me that we were losing guys due to just incompetence. And that was my PTSD because that was something I battled. I could fix. And I, I did. So when I could fix it and I had really receptive bosses after that, I did, they would remove that like a cancerous tumor. And so throughout the rest of my career after that, I dedicated my life, my life's work while I was in the Marine Corps to make sure that we were not going to lose anybody else due to incompetence. And so from changing policy and who goes to schools and what do we do? And because we had squad leaders and sergeants and staff sergeants that were leading Marines in combat that shouldn't have been there. They were only there because they had the rank on, but they had no qualification. And so we at least made it in the first Marine division that they had to be qualified. They had to go to the certain schools to stand in front of Marines and lead them. And eventually, after I'd just gotten out, a couple of years after I'd gotten out, I got the phone call from um, the, the assistant commandant's office that the initiative that we put in place at the 1st Marine Division became Marine Corps policy throughout. And they changed that whole MOS. So you couldn't be a squad leader until you went to squad leader school. You couldn't be a platoon sergeant until you went to platoon sergeant school. Awesome. So a lot of that work that we initially did became now the way it is. So we've you know, hopefully they're going to save lives in the, in the future. It will. But that we couldn't do it at that time. But that's why I, so I grasped that and say, okay, like Cheeks's life meant something because it inspired me to do this and be an asshole for the rest of my Marine Corps career and force people to do the right thing. And so Cheeks's legacy lives on through the lives of the people that will live because there's qualified people leaving these, leading these guys now. So that's that circle. That's how I, process it and i can go okay it's going back to vietnam or even world war one and you you would think the u.s military would have a reference point of what not to do you know no. and they, it's like a broken record and especially after vietnam you would think okay this idea didn't work really well in vietnam let's not try that again but they did almost identical again and you wonder did they those people who were making those errors, did they study Vietnam? Did anybody know what was going on in Vietnam to make the exact same careless, uh, just ridiculous, stupid, moronic mistakes? Yeah. It's, it's Do you know the point. only thing in warfare history that has been true ever since? The only thing that works. Napoleon said that a man would die for a colored piece of cloth, meaning a medal, a decoration. That's the only thing that's true. People will sacrifice for sacrifice other people, some, most other people for decorations and they go to war and they do these things for decorations. 
Now it's crazy, and I know there's a controversy thing to say, but it's true. Everybody wants to shoot so they can get a combat action ribbon. Everybody wants to be this. Everybody wants to go on. Like when we were doing that stuff in Iraq, people wanted to go out with me on my team because we were getting combat. We were getting shot at every day. And they wanted to go with me so they could get their combat action ribbon and possibly a Purple Heart. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? What is young guys? No, these are senior officers okay, that were okay. sitting behind a desk pushing papers. They would know, hey, Gunner, they'd see me at lunch and go, hey, Gunner, you going out tomorrow? Yeah. Can I go with you? No. Why not? Because I don't do combat tourism. <laughs> it's a great word. So, never heard of that combat tourism. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a combat tour guy. I'm not into the combat tour guy. And if I was, I'd be a millionaire because I would charge you such an astronomical figure to take you out there and risk my life and yours, which I would have a problem risking yours so much, but mine and other guys. And so it was combat tourism. So that was the word, the buzzword. And you guys Senior saw officers, that? You got shot at that much? We got shot at every day. For how long? Every single day. Yeah. Actually, I had one of my gunners in a vehicle get five com five Purple Hearts in one combat tour until we finally sent him home. We're like, hey, you had enough. He's And he was mad at us. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, like, that was your fifth Purple Heart. Sure. And you're we're not going to play the odds. You're going home. And he was livid. And I... Honestly, I don't think he would talk to me today if I saw him. It's He'd all right. Still that His children will thank you. His children yeah, will thank you. Hey, you got to do me a favor. What's that? I got a package that I need you to deliver down there and hand out. Whatever. So I go over there, and on this – you ever seen an Air Force pallet? So yeah, I'm, I've seen them on Force, TV, yeah. An Air Force pallet is 10 foot by 10 foot. It's a big metal thing. So on this Air Force pallet is this huge cardboard box all cellophane wrapped. And she's telling me the story as we get up to the box. She goes, this little girl in Tennessee or Kentucky had went online and got all these donations to Beanie Babies to hand out to the kids in Iraq. And they're right here. So I opened the box and I, thousands. And the box is probably four foot tall and about 10 foot across. It's a huge, immense box. So these little Beanie Babies, which you've probably seen, are stuffed in this thing. And there's thousands of them. And I go, what do you want me to do with these? She goes, hand them out. I said, Megan, I'm an infantry guy. These are combat Marines. We're in combat in Fallujah. The last thing we're going to do is hand out Beanie Babies. <laughs> she goes, no, you don't understand, Mike. This will make things better. Believe me. So she goes into this big blah, 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 blah story. And I finally cave and said, okay, I'll take them off your hands. I, Whatever. So we tell, I tell my guys, there's a box right there in the middle of that warehouse. Don't give me any shit. Just take the contents of it, put them in trash bags, and put them in all our vehicles, and we're taking them with us. They walk over and look in the box, and they all look at me like I lost my mind. And I'm looking, I'm getting, I said, remember, don't give, I don't want to hear it. That's an order. Get that shit in the vehicle. Shut the hell up and get out of my sight. So I'm pissed. I'm like, I had to take these beanie babies. So they're thinking, oh, the, this girl swooed the gunner. So we get in, the, we get back to Fallujah, and they go, what do you want to do with the beanie baby, sir? I I don't care. Put them in the little, we had a little warehouse, stick them in the warehouse. So we did, we stuck them in these warehouse and they're there for like months. And finally, one of my staff sergeants kind of said, Hey, sir, what do you want to do with these beanie babies? And I said, shit, burn them. I don't care. And he goes, and he comes back, sir, this little girl, she spent all her time. Last thing you want to do, I don't want to be involved in burning these things. At least just hand them out. And I said, okay, tell everybody to grab shit, a bunch every time we go out and hand them out. So we do. And I'm, 
more, they're doing that stuff. I'm more aware of the other stuff. And it was towards the end of the deployment. And that same staff sergeant came up to me and said, Hey, sure. Do we have any more beanie babies? I'm like, no, why? So he sits down with me and he starts crying. And I'm like, what the, cause I've never seen this guy cry. I've never seen this side of him. And he says, sure. You don't understand. The Marines loved these things because they would take their helmets off. They'd take a knee. They'd sit with the children and play with them. It made it better. And it made him feel like they were human again. It took away all the stuff and it made him feel, and they were, they, these guys were changed men after that deployment. They weren't screwed up like they normally would have been. And it worked, right? They could be, they found something pretty. Yeah. And so it wasn't until much later, I made another combat tour. I came back to Iraq. Megan is in the Marine Corps now. She'd come back in the Marine Corps. She'd re-enlisted back in there. She's a major and she's public affairs. And so I see her at the same place. And I'm like, what the hell? You're back in Marine Corps? So we sit down, we have dinner and at this DFAC facility. And I tell her, I said, you were right, Megan. And I told her the whole thing that happened. And she said, I know. That's what I was trying to tell you, but you're too stupid to understand. You got to find things that connect people to make them not feel or make them feel like they're human again. Like they're loved and they could cherish and they could do these, feel these good emotions again. It makes you feel better. And so uh, she was, we fought back and forth and she wins. And then she comes to me and says, I want to go out. I've seen, I've, she has a public affair. She writes about it. She has to be the voice on it. If you, after this, you Google her, you'll see a bunch of videos that she put out. She was interviewed by the news. She was the lead person that the news would talk to about the Marine Corps operations during Iraq. And so she comes to me and says, I want to go out on a combat tour with you, Gunner, because I've never seen it. No, we're not doing that. Again, no combat tourism. We don't do this. You don't need to see it. Believe me, you're living a better life. She gives me this big spiel, blah, 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 blah. And I don't buy it. So I leave. My seven months are done. She's there for a full year. She's got another three or four months after I leave. I go home. She's still in country. I get a phone call one morning uh, at my desk at my the battalion, and it's her associate, and she's crying on the phone. And she knows that we're really good friends. And she goes, sir, I want to let you know Megan is dead. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she goes, she was killed by an IED this morning in Ramadi. And it was like, again, so that can't happen. She's a public affairs. She's not allowed to leave the area. Blah, blah. How did this happen? Well, she convinced someone to take her on with her to this new story. And the vehicle was hit by an IED and she was dead. <laughs> you know, and like son of a bitch. There's that full circle again. So I couldn't make her funeral. She's buried at Arlington. So when I finally got to Arlington, I took, so there's a beanie baby called Hero and it's a little camouflage bear. And so it had a little tag on it, it says Hero and it says all the stuff. So I went to go pay my respects to a lot of my friends that are buried in Arlington. So Megan being one of them. So I'm sitting on Megan's grave and we're talking and I put that beanie baby right on Megan's headstone and we start bullshitting and just laying there in the sun, just talking about whatever, telling her what's going on. And then I get up to leave, say about my goodbyes, and I'm walking out. I get in, a, I get in my truck and I'm driving back to Quantico, Virginia, uh, where I was just doing a meeting or something. And I get a phone call from someone I know and says, hey, were you just at Arlington? I said, yeah. 
That, how do you know that? I'm here and I'm at Megan's gravesite and there's a beanie baby. And I remember the story that Megan had told me about you and her about the beanie baby thing. Did you leave this? And I'm like, yeah. And it was just like that. And he goes, dude, that is too cool. Because all he had to do is heard the story. He knew me. And he just well, knew that. And how did he the see the, how did he see the beanie baby on the gravestone? He's standing. He had uh, just come before I I was leaving. He just showed up. We didn't okay. see each other there. And then he had seen the beanie baby leaning up on the headstone. And he's thinking, wait a second, Musselman and McClung, they did this beanie baby thing in Iraq. I wonder if Mets Musselman was here. So he had called me and sure enough, yeah, it was like, ah, oh, okay. So there's that lives, you know, so there is some really neat. Um, yeah. I mean, I stories. it reminds me of the story I interviewed when I was doing, creating the female combat character, I interviewed five women, two specific girls that I interviewed. They're very different, but they're very similar. One girl, yeah. was, her whole thing was to prove that she was tough as nails in her, you know, she was, she's from the Bronx Her after 9-11, her one brother joined the NYPD. The other brother joined the FDNY, you know, fire department. So, you know, and she became a Marine. She was the whole 9-11 thing, you know, sign up to join right away. The other girl, her name was Heather. She just wanted to go to, she needed money to go to college. And, uh, and she always, she used to, she always told me in, and we've spoken quite, we've become good friends. She says, you know, I was really a shitty soldier. Her dad served, her uncle served, her brother served, her mother served. She goes, you know, but my mom said, you know, I don't have any money for you to go to college. If you want to go to school, you're going to have to join. So she joined and anyhow, so she was, I don't forget what her MOS was, but she, she became really good friends with an interpreter in Iraq, really good friends. His name was Hussein and he had multiple wives. And apparently he always, you know, would always joke, well, you should be my third wife. And anyhow, they were very close and he gave her a bottle of perfume. Uh, and her whole thing was, you know, she was always trying to hold on to her femi femininity where the other girls yeah, yeah. were trying to get rid of it. She was like, I was dying to shave. When she tells me the story when she was in the showers, they had built their uh, bucketing water in from the Tigris River, nasty, nasty water. And they were making an outdoor shower near the base. And she was taking a shower. She said, we haven't, you know, she, you know, I'm a girl. You get sand in places where you're not supposed to have sand. Just all I wanted to do was shave my fucking legs. That's all I wanted to do. Shave my legs. I hadn't shaved like in two weeks and I had, I just want to get clean. And, you know, and then she would tell the story where they would, because it was so laborious to get the water that they would cycle the water. So, you know, and they would take turns when they would do this. So if you went, you took the shower for the first time, the last time you would take it the last time. So that means you would use everyone else's dirty water. But right. she said, when you're, you haven't showered in yeah. two weeks, you don't care. And yeah. she was about to, she started lathering up, shaving her legs and they got hit by, uh, they were getting hit by, what's the word? Not a bomb. Mortars. Thank you. Rot mortars. Yeah. They were getting yeah. hit by mortars. She was like, God, she was like, fuck it. Damn it was just about to start shaving my legs. And she started thinking, she heard those sounds go off and people running around. She was like, well, I have, I have two choices here. I can either, you know, I can get out of the shower and go get my gear on or finish shaving my legs and they get my gear on. And she was like, fuck it. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die like a woman and I'm going to shave my legs. So she shaved her legs. But then she tells a story where this interpreter gave her a bottle of perfume and told her, you know, Heather, you should, um, you should, you should smell like a woman over here, not like a man. And I get emotional thinking about it. She was like, it was the, it was the kindest gesture in the most horrific time that anyone has ever done for me. And 
he gave me my womanhood back in a time when I thought I could never get it back. And yeah. she tells the story. He was assassinated because they found out that he was working with her and she was heartbroken by it. But she shared that story with me. And it's the littlest things. Yeah. The most, yeah. So, you know what this is, right? Hold it up. Mm. So I chew tobacco. Oh, okay. You, a spit cup. This is a spittoon. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm sitting in the middle of Afghanistan up in Marja, northern part of the Helmand Providence, and just sitting on this berm, helmet off, relaxing in the shade, spitting tobacco on the ground. This old Afghan guy sees me, walks away. About 15 minutes later, comes back with this. He had just built this. Oh. He made this. Handmade this. Banged this out. Did whatever. Polished it up. Um, I mean, this soldered. It's soldered and every. It's beautiful and soldered around the edges. That's you know. That's the thing over, that he handed to me. Go ahead. And it was like, so I was using it, and the guys looked at me and go, "Why aren't you spitting on the ground, sir?" I said, "Because it's respect." I said, "The guy, he wasn't mad that I was spitting on the ground. He was just happy that." He had a skill set that he could do something for somebody like me. And he said, thank you. And he kept doing the, the, he couldn't understand, was just doing the thank you. And I knew what he's trying to say. It was just his way of saying, hey, thanks for everything you've done. Thanks. Two strangers. Yeah. Yeah. So I still. You still I that's beautiful, here. man. That's one of the things that Heather and Nancy both said. Yeah. He said that the people of Afghanistan, he said, the majority better. were the most beautiful people that they yeah. ever met. Most kindest, beautiful yeah. people. Heather tells a story. She says sometimes they would bring us cold grapes in the hot desert when they yeah. didn't have anything to drink. She says the people who were evil were without a doubt the most evil creatures you could ever imagine. The evil beyond evil. But he says the majority of the people were the kindest, most generous, most loving people they had ever met. And the things they would open their homes to them. They would give them dinner. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable stories. Afghanistan was a lot different from Iraq for that perspective where there were both evil guys doing evil shit over there. However, the majority of the Iraqis didn't want nothing to do with you. They didn't like having you around because when you were around, bad shit happened to them. And so they they could they, they were they knew not that, happy. They, they had yeah. collateral issues coming their way. Yeah, they were like, you guys go screw off. They wouldn't do shit for us. They always wanted something. Afghans, like she said, completely different they were very inquisitive about our world our lives showing pictures yeah i remember showing pictures of new york city like skyscrapers and they were just like these guys in these little tribal villages out in the middle of nowhere that never gone more than 50 miles outside of their thing and they're looking at the guys that were explaining like this building's made out of glass and he's glass and it's this high yeah and it's like you try to explain the height, and he's he doesn't even understand. Oh. There's no concept, right? There's no no foundation of the of establishing the concept, and so because he's never seen anything other than mud, two as story size. As a friend of mine told me, when I climbed Kilimanjaro, he says, "You don't know what number one is until you visit number seven. Yeah, yeah, and there's a yeah. You have to have a, a grounding, like a basic understanding of what that. Okay. In comparison to, oh, okay, you know, so for him, and that's what Afghanistan, that was really a beautiful, because I had laminated pictures of my wife and my daughter that I carried, you know, in my pocket. Um, 
And so I'd show it to them and they were like, my wife's got blonde hair, blue eyes. She's born in Southern California. And so surfer girl. And so she's, they look at her and they don't see, they again, blonde hair, blue eyes. No way. Yeah. You know, like you're showing it to them and they're like, what? You're like a you know, I remember one guy going, you married a model. <laughs> Don't tell her that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they were like, oh, my God, that's the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my whole life. Did you see combat in Afghanistan? Oh, yeah, a lot of it. And uh, so my job was to go out with other units and evaluate them. So I'm always on combat patrols with other as a regimental guy. I was a regimental gunner at the time. So we had eight infantry. Let, let me understand what let me understand your role. So a regimental gunner. So like we're tactically. Physically, where are you? What are you doing? What are you holding? Okay, so I look just like a regular infantry guy. And actually, I still have, I have all of this stuff still. So that's my plate carrier still. Same one that I carried. And then, not the same one, but very similar, my rifle. Just an M4. Topsable rifle. I look just like a regular infantryman, like a regular schmo. I didn't even wear rank because, I mean, everybody knew who I was. You're up high. You're in the truck. What? I'm on the ground. Oh, you're walking. Okay. Okay. I'm walking. I'm usually I'll take a helicopter from my base to where where I want to go. So if you pick a region like the Helmand province, we had four infantry battalions operating in different sectors. So a thousand guys, thousand guys. Regiment sits over the top of that as the higher headquarters. Division sits over us because there's another regiment to the north. So there's two infantry regiments in Afghanistan, eight infantry battalions at one point. So the higher headquarters went. The lowest was an infantry battalion. They operate at the lowest echelon. They're the fighting element. Then there's a regiment sits over four infantry battalions. They're the higher headquarters. So they do all the coordination stuff. And then above us was the division. They ran everything. The whole Helmand province, the whole part of the whole... Marine Corps slice of Afghanistan. And so I'm in the middle, says the regimental guy. So my job was to make sure, one, that the battalions were getting things that they needed. That if they got, if they called for airstrikes or artillery fire, that they were doing it properly. So in order to do that, I had to be out there with them, engaged in combat to to watch this. We were doing an evaluation on the medevacs one day for a week, for like five days, we did evaluation to make sure we're getting our guys out that are wounded fast enough. So we had our own dust off guys at Camp Dwyer in Afghanistan. And so their army national guard guys flying the Blackhawks. And I had to go out with those guys one day. And let me tell you, I don't ever want to do that again because I don't like flying. I have no control, right? So bird goes down again, everybody's a pig. You can't really walk away from that. So we got shot at all the time in the helicopter. And I'm like, I don't want this job. You guys are heroes. You can have it. You guys love this shit. I'd rather be on the ground. And we were on the ground and I'd go on combat patrols with different platoons, squads from all over the region. So one week I'd be operating in the north in Marja. One week I'd be operating in the south or in the east or the west, just hopping around. And then I'd go out what we call live the nomadic life for about a month, come back to the regimental headquarters for four or five days to rest, regroup, change clothes, shave, and then debrief my boss. Hey, we're doing okay. Or this battalion needs this and that kind of thing. So I'm like what we call eyes forward. 
for the commander. So he projects his interest and his thing forward through me because I'm a staff guy. And so it's, it is a weird relationship. Um, for the most part, they do like having you around. You don't want to be a jackass because then they don't like having you around. Because yeah. then you go back and tattle on them. They don't want you around. So you're not really – you're trying to solve their problems. It's a fine line. They need help. your help, but they don't want you – they don't want you looking so, over them. Right. So I'm trying to solve the problems without getting everybody else involved. So that was my thing. And that's where, so I was out with a lot of different guys. And that's where, you know, again, so I started seeing we were losing guys because we were stupid. So we lost one of them. <clears throat> we were up in, Mar I was with 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. We were up in the north. And we were at a platoon firebase, <clears throat> and there were two and they were probably about a thousand feet or a thousand kilometers separation between these two bases. And then every night they would rotate. So they would patrol during the day outside their respective little fire bases. And then at night, these two squads would rotate. So they would come change places, but they would take the same damn road every time. And so I was with the squad leader that one night and I said, Hey, whoa, 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 what are we doing? And they're like, Hey, sir, we're doing this. We're going over there to replace those guys, and those guys are coming over here to replace us. And I'm like, okay, but why do you take the same road? And they look at me like I'm like, you know, we always say a dick grown on my forehead. What the? What do you mean? Because it's the freaking road, you know. That's that. And I'm like, you got to change it up, guys. And they're like, ah, bullshit. You know, nothing ever happens because we can see it. We can see the other base. So this night we were driving, we were walking out, and. We everybody carried metal detectors. Hell, I even carried one. You know the little sweeping for IDs. And so I'm breaking mine out and getting in place. And then one of the Marines next to me goes, "Sir, we don't need it. We don't use it because it's such a short move." And I'm like, "What the fuck is going on?" Okay, so I collapse it again because I'm not in charge. They're in charge. I'm just an observer. So I'm putting it back in. And as soon as I'm putting it back in, the lead guy, the staff or the sergeant steps on a pressure plate, blows them all over the fucking place. So we go down, everybody's down. We didn't recover his last piece until seven days later. So he was blown into the canal. We had to bring in PJ divers to recover body parts in this canal that, I mean, he was, when I say all over the place, he was all over the place. And why was, recover all of it? Just out of respect? Yeah, that's what we do. You don't know who uh, he was though, right? You didn't know. I met him. I didn't know who he was, met him. And then shortly after that, I was down in another battalion, 3-6, on a combat. We were sweeping the enemy out of an area. We knew they were operating in here, but they were going to do a sweep, like just fight through this whole meadow. So I went down there to join those guys. And as soon as we got in, I mean, as soon as we stepped across and we got into these little rice patties, you know, all shit hit, the lo hit loose. We were on the ground. What's that um, like, though? When all that shit, is it loud? Is it intense? What What is... It's what is what? Yeah, it, I mean, it's everything. Um, I'm with my buddy. He's an EOD chief warrant officer, actually. No, um, you're not. You don't have time to be scared. Right. And I know that sounds arrogant, but no, if, no, you, it doesn't. if you're if you buy if you like any Your training kicks thing in goes towards scared, then you get hurt. Right. Right. You you gotta you gotta act. You gotta go through your TTPs. I don't know if you ever heard that word. No. Tactics, techniques, tactics, and procedures. So everybody has TTPs, techniques, tactics, and procedures. So your TTPs kick in, and you just you're clicking. 
All right. Hey, there's the enemy. They're trying to kill me. Let's kill those guys first. And so we fix them. We call in an airstrike. We do all this stuff. It was just a bad day. One of the kids, and he's, and actually I met his mom later on. He's from Kentucky. His name is Luke Scott in uh, West Virginia, Kentucky area. So I met Luke just before his birthday, his 21st birthday. And so we were talking, he real quiet, reserved kid from the Midwest, like what you would think. And plus I'm a senior officer. So he didn't know what to think. You know, he'd been in the Marine Corps six, eight months. He's shit. So I'm talking to him and he's like, you know, hey, sir, it's my birthday coming up. I'm like, oh shit, mine just happened. Mine's November, his is December. And so we we're bullshitting. Luke, it's the day before his birthday when all this stuff's going down. And I'm laying next to him, and an explosion happens, and all this shit goes flying up in the air. And you can hear it like and you know those are big chunks of metal, like that whooping sound as it's cutting through the air. And I hear it, and I'm like, oh shit. And we're laying down, and I tuck my arms in, and I yell at everybody else, tuck your arms in. Um, so this thing comes down and chops Luke's rifle right in half, like a freaking cartoon. So he's laying behind, he pulls his right, his hands in this metal piece, like looks like a freaking chunk of a guillotine comes flying down, chops is, goes through his scope, goes through his M16, literally like butter chops it in half, two pieces <clears throat> and nicks him on the nose, a pretty good gash, but enough to bleed in day before his birthday. And we're laughing about it. We're like, what the fuck? This is the craziest thing ever. You get a purple is that, heart. Is, is that coming from an IED or something? Or Yeah. It was a chunk of an artillery round. And so we're like, holy shit, it's your birthday. You get a purple heart and you get to go home, you know, back to the camp for, you know, not home home, but back to the battalion to re rest and recoup and get this thing fixed, get stitched up. And everybody's like, shit, Luke, happy birthday, jackass. You know, everybody's having a good time. Well, he goes back that day gets it fixed comes back because he doesn't leave his guys so i see him and i'm like in that later that night because we're still fighting through this this could be like three or four days of fighting so then it's his birthday and then nothing really happens the day after his birthday we're still going through this we're walking i hear a gunshot ring out bam, just a lone gunshot and you just hear this you know what happened because you hear a like a thud sound because it hit armor body armor and we immediately hear marine down and i look behind me and luke's laying flat on the ground and it just again like a fucking baseball bat right out from underneath me and anger the whole emotion stuff and then you realize again it's like you know you do this i don't know if you saw apocalypse now when the guy don't ever get out of the boat when the tiger goes after him don't ever get out of the boat don't ever get out of the boat we come up with these things and you're like don't ever make friends don't ever make friends. Don't ever find out who these fuckers are. You don't need to know. Don't. Why, why did he go back? Because he's got his, his buddies. Mm. It's a sense of belonging. He's not going to be that guy. You know, you don't. No one wants to be the guy when they come back and they talk about it and you weren't there. That's yeah. the worst feeling ever. You'd rather be dead. And so he comes back. He gets killed. And I call the battalion commander, who's a good friend of mine, Carl. And I'm like, hey, sir do you mind if I write a letter to the mother as well? He goes, yeah, absolutely. So I write a letter and I had told her, you know, and I said, and I sold in this letter. I said, I only knew your son for three days, really, literally for three days. But again, so what I see in your son is one, because she was a single mom, raised her kids, um, you know, great individual, human being, great human being, respectable, 
respective. I mean, just everything you want in a son and in a good friend. And hell, I would want him to date my daughter. He's just a great kid, got great expectations, has a goal in his life where he wants to go. He just gotten engaged before he came over here, was planning to get married when he gets home, start a family, doing this whole thing. And I wrote this whole letter. And I eventually got to, when I got up to Kentucky, I go out and saw her. We stayed in touch. And I went and saw her. And every day on her birthday, on his birthday, I call her. And we talk. And it's still hard. I mean, that was 2010, 2010, you know, so 13 years ago. And it's still. Where was he from? He, Kentucky. That's where she lives now, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky. And she's a hairdresser. So we talk all the time. And still to this day, we'll just talk about things. And, you know, it's just reminding and it is a good thing you know and she and i could she's a great lady hair hairdresser small little town just always smiling you know just beautiful person and so it, like her you reminded like this is just shit and so when all this happens when afghanistan happens and our government turns our backs and we walk away from the stuff these things all then don't matter they just to me, did someone forcing it back in and saying, it doesn't matter. We don't care. Well, it doesn't bother. Where were you at when you started, you started watching the news about Afghanistan? I was home and my wife had come in. I was actually on the patio and the wife came out and goes, what do you want? Do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, what do you talk about? And she goes, Biden just announced he's going to pull out of Afghanistan. And I said, that doesn't mean anything. And then, so I started reading about it and I'm like, oh shit. This guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about because he thinks that they're going to stand on their own. That's not how it works. This guy is so clueless. I mean, he's not his, the guy's advising him. And that's where, again, the, the defeat was the generals where you're just like, okay, at least the generals will go, this is a bad idea, boss. No, they roll over and show their pink underside. So that stepping stat, that stepping stone is tombstones. It's built out of tombstones. You, if you look at those steps, that people, those kind of people achieve to get to those positions. If you look really close, those stones, those steps actually have names engraved on the gravestones. Wow. That's and a great, so, that's a great image. Yeah. And I, and I actually, I, that was an image that actually, I don't know. I saw one thing that the capital steps, it was the, you know, you says they're like white marble, the steps of the capital. And I had one day I'd looked at it and my mind was playing tricks. And I saw that I saw Holy shit. Am I seeing things? And it was, I was just, that's what my mind was thinking that all of those steps to get to those places, these elite, that eliteness power is all on those tombs, those white tombstones that you see studded in the green grass. It's like sometimes I've been to Arlington Center. I perform at the Library of Congress and at Kennedy Center twice. And um, so I've been to Arlington Cemetery quite a few times. I always go when I go there. And it's such a, it's a, such an eerie place because it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's a cemetery, it's a graveyard. But what you don't notice about Arlington Cemetery, I'm sure you, you might have, but a lot of people haven't, is that when you stand at the highest point of Arlington Cemetery, in view is the Capitol and the White House. They're right. the two powers that send these men and women to fight and die. And it's a very strange triangle of sight to know that you're standing in a graveyard seeing the two buildings that actually have chosen to send these guys to die and i find that it's a very eerie 
place. When you notice that, you know, when you notice that they're here because those people in those buildings have sent them here. Um, You know, it's crazy about that though. If you go there and look back, you can't see it. What do you mean? If you're standing at the Capitol, looking back at Arlington, you don't see the tombstones. So there's no, there is a remembrance when you're there. You only see it from Arlington. You don't see it from the other side. Yeah. So there's a, that's, that's why. You don't want to see it from the Capitol because then you don't want to be reminded. Right. That's but they, when you're on the other side, you are reminded. Yeah, you're yeah, absolutely you wonder, right. I wonder if you move the White House to Arlington, how things would change. Yeah, if you put the White if 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 the White House was in the smack dab in the middle and the president had to come to work every day, there might be a change of policy. Yeah. 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 You know, if you made if you, and oh. so a lot of people don't like Bush. I could take him leaving, but the one thing that I do like about is he at least shows a little bit of compassion of the or the understanding of what he did, his orders and what they involved. He spends yeah. a lot of time up here from Crawford going to the veterans plus to spending a lot of time. He yeah. doesn't have to do that. No, and there's the, got to be a level. I have to believe. And I was, cause you know, being, I was in the North towers when it happened and all that. So I was angry. I was just like every American, very patriotic and very sable rattling. There has to be a level of, you have to believe that to himself a night or in the morning, it has to be a level of guilt of his decision of going into Iraq. I have to believe that he has to think Afghanistan, we all understood, but why did I get manipulated in a way to get us into Iraq when we really needed, never needed to be there. And I feel that's why he, this is me talking. I don't have any proof of that, but as a, someone who studies human behavior, his guilt forces him to find a way to relieve it. And yeah, I, does I it through agree. his paintings, does it through what he gives back yeah. on. But um, that's what I have to believe. And I, you know, I, I was, I remember when Iraq was happening, I was one of those Americans like, yeah, we got to go. Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. bad guy. We got to get him. He's going to do another one like 9-11, you know. And the more I've listened to your story and so many other stories and talked to so many vets and, met many amputees, many gold star families. I've become good friends with Kevin and Joyce Lucy. They are his, their son. I do his monologue in the play. Um, and um, his son took his life from, he just couldn't handle yeah. what he, what he had gone through. And I, I was performing in Cape Cod and someone heard the story on the play and they said, man, at, at the Q and A says, I know that family. And that is something that's always been said to me when I would do the play and I would always be like, oh, my gosh, am I doing your letter? Because some of the letters are verbatim. And they said, no, that was like my grandfather's. Or that's just exactly like what my mother said or what my father said or my son or my brother. But this guy said, no, I know that family. That's the Lucy's. That's Jeff Lucy. And so we spoke afterwards. And he says, they would like to, I know they would like to talk to you. And I mean, I was really nervous about it, but we became really good friends. We cried on the phone. He told me his you know, his son's story. His, he wrote a book, but... um you know, his son took his life because of what he did in in Iraq. And you think, right? what a tragic loss for a family. I have a son, you know, and... There's a... So there's a... So suicide in the Marine Corps, I don't know if it's in the civilian side, it has a thing that says, uh, like a banner or poster, it says, uh, suicide is not an option. Have you heard that? No, never heard of that. Okay, so there's, a, there's actually a campaign. It's called Suicide's Not an Option. If you believe in that, you're a fucking fool. Because yeah. it absolutely is a, an option because people are fucking doing it. 
at record rates. Yeah. That the what the ban the campaign should be is we need to understand that it is an option and it's a very viable option. How do we get that option on the table? So fast forward 20 April 2015, I get the letter from the Marine Corps saying, Thank you for your service. You're going to retire, forced into retirement June of 2030 or uh, 2020 or 2015. And I was shocked. I mean, it was like a crushing blow. Wait a second. I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't, what's next? I don't know. All I know is this. I don't want to leave this. This is what I've always wanted to do. I'm surrounded by the people I love, people I enjoy. I can't do this. And plus, I'm self-medicating this time. So I'm drinking, um, drinking gin, Bombay Sapphire straight out of the refrigerator, right out of the, just because it looks like water. And I'm, I call it four fingers. So when I go to a bar, they go, what do you want? Gin, no ice, neat. How much? Four fingers. Just four, fin- four, four fingers, fingers deep or this way? Four fingers wide. This way. Just like this. Four fingers. And I would drink it. And I turned into a raging asshole. And that's caused a lot of problems. Plus, I had busted up my back. I had busted up my neck. And I had all these other freaking problems. And I was self-medicating. I was on Flexerol, Vicodin, and Percocet, all to three at the same time. Yeah, and, and it, I wake up in the morning. It gives it to you like it's candy. Yeah, I was getting big to-go bottles for deployments. They're like six hundred pills. Jesus, family packs. Jesus. And so I'm waking up in the morning. I'm drinking coffee, and I kid you not, Doug. I'm t- I'm I reach into this big. It's like a family size screw on kids lock bottle, and I just go like this, and drink coffee. Next bottle, next bottle, and go. Right, and, and I'm more- okay. I'm high as a kite. But I'm okay. I'm a functioning addict because it's the only thing that's going to get me through the day because otherwise I'm going to feel the pain. I'm going to feel all this other bullshit, all this depression, all of those crushing stuff, and I'm just going to – fuck, I'm done. So all of this happens, and it was – I don't know – again, I don't know why. So April 7th, 2014, I invited all of my family because we were getting ready to say goodbye to the Marine Corps. My family's there that lives in California, all of my friends, we have a big cookout thing. All the kids are, we got the Proxima playing a movie on the side of the house on the grass. So the kids are sitting there. We got barbecue grill, the fire pit ring, everybody's there. And we're living on base. So all the military families are there. And the reason I did this because I planned it all out. This was the night I was going to kill myself. And my wife was immediately going to be surrounded by family, friends, and everything else when I took my life. Because I was going to walk out on the back patio where no one was at and shoot myself. And had put one bullet in my Glock 19 because I didn't want to make it look like I accidentally shot myself. That's why I put one bullet in there. But in my mind, I was thinking, what a great husband I am. Because what other husband would think about having all their family here, their friends, to make sure my wife felt no, like, lost right away. She was going to be surrounded by people who loved her. So I'm in this perverse world that I'm fucking fabricating with all this other shit going on in my life. I'm living this out, this fairy tale of I'm a great human being. Man, no one else is going to do – no one else would think of this. I'm putting my wife first, right? My wife and my daughter because, again, I'm going to kill myself. Immediately they're going to be comforted. So I go out back, and this is where I tell people because I talk to people how to get through adversity, suicide prevention. And I say, the day, the minutes before I was going to do it, this sense of relief came over me. Like, 
like your long day and you're waiting to lay on your your bed or your sofa and that softness of that pillow and the coolness and the feeling of being home, that longing desire just to relax is now there on the forefront of my brain. And I know in a couple of minutes, it's going to be all over with. Pain's going to be gone and I can, I'll be fine. Right. So I take the gun and I put it to my head. And just as I do that, and I'm ready to do it. And I, again, I feel peace. I feel like I'm ready to go home, ready to lay down. And no apprehension, no whatsoever. I hear my daughter, she was in middle school at the time. And she says, dad, they're looking for you. And it fucking hit me like a, like this is where I talk about divine invention, like a fucking lightning bolt. Stop my head all the way down my toes, all the way up to my feet, to my fingers. And I could still feel it right when I said this. And this immense sweat, like all of my body just comes alive. Disgust, humiliation, all of these just things come to my head right away. And I look and I'm just, I mean, I felt sick. I felt so sick. I dropped the gun. I looked at myself. I'm shaking. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? Who am I? Like, how did this happen? So she, I go to her before she comes outside. The gun's still laying there. And she's like, dad, are you okay? And I said, yeah, let me go. And I go in the bathroom. I fucking throw water and I grab a towel. And I come outside and I start playing fucking Mike Musselman again. In my mind, I'm thinking, what the fuck just happened? That night, everything goes to bed. I pick up that gun, unload it and go put it away. I go to bed, couldn't sleep. Next morning, I sit my wife and my daughter down. And I tell them the truth. I tell them what almost happened that night. And I'm thinking to myself, she's going to fucking punch me. She's going to throw a dish at me. I just, this is it. She's divorcing me. This is it. This is the final straw, right? She's crying. I can see tears running in my face. My daughter's bawling. She's got her head in her lap crying. How old is she? I'm, she was probably in eighth grade, ninth grade. And I'm shaking. I don't know whether to cry or not. I'm still figuring this out. And my wife stands up, looks at me and says, if you would have walked away from me like that, I would have never forgiven you. And it was like that moment of clarity, like, what? Do you know what I gave up in my life so you could do what you wanted to do? Do you know what I gave up, what your daughter gave up so you could go out and do what you were doing as a Marine? And you were going to walk away from me like that? And that was that. Holy shit. Like that moment of it, the effect of suicide is so much greater to those that survive it. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. the, the families way more. The lucky one is the guy that did it or the gal. Yeah. And so we go to counseling, we talk and we talk to a counselor and the counselors were never effective. I mean, really, I, they were always a fucking joke. I mean, in pocket degree, whatever, young kid. It was like, whatever, you know, just tell them what they want to hear, get the hell out of her, get the check in the block, go. It wasn't until I started talking myself and then finding my own answers, reading my own books and really finding out. I read Dr. Frankel's book on, you know, uh, and I can't believe I didn't do it much later, but Man's Search for Meaning. And that really brought some clarity from it. Like, what the, oh, okay, got it. Um, and so I started reading more and more and then talking to more. And then when I first talked about it, you know, to somebody that was really kind of letting yourself out. It felt good. It was like, okay, that's healing. And so talking about it more and then dealing with other people that have the same things, 
then you're finding more commonality. Then you're finding that goodness, right? So goodness does come from adversity and fucking trauma and stuff. You just got to, takes a whole lot more looking for it. But so when you say all of that, so there's a big turmoil, that big war, Iraq, Afghanistan, all those deployments all being gone, all the separation, all the loss, all of that stuff, it bubbles up and they're still there. But now I have a healthy way to deal with it. What would you tell that young man, young woman who has that gun up to their head? What would you tell them? I would tell them that, again, it goes back to the escaping the pain isn't the solution because you're leaving more pain behind you. And that's what I try and emphasize is that it may be the solution for you, but it's the most selfish act that you can ever think of doing. It's the most selfish act. Yeah, but the pain, what if they devil advocate here? The pain is just so great. Because you, because you're a warrior, you're meant to deal with pain. It's who we are. That's my burden. That's my honor. My honor is I get to carry that demented freaking past. Because you're a soldier. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I'm a soldier. And that's what soldiers do. Soldiers deal with the shit, with the stuff that normal human beings would lose. We deal with it because it's who we are. It's in our makeup. It's in our DNA. It's our blood. It's a badge of honor. And there's light on the other side. Oh, yeah. Because it is. it is. We're warriors. Warriors deal with that. I am, so uh, you don't ever stop being a warrior because you, you're going to deal with it your whole life. Because guys will think that they're out of the military. They're no longer a warrior. No, you're not. You're still a warrior because you're still fighting your internal wars, the internal battles within your own head. That we don't have to fight. That you don't have to fight. I'm saving you from that war. I saved hundreds from doing that. Right. I'll deal with it. I can deal with it. I'm strong. I've never been, I've never been a guy. I was always the guy when people said, Oh, you gotta learn to meditate. You gotta what? what the fuck? Learn to meditate. I'm like, you fucking crazy, man. Only fucking hippies and shit like that fucking meditate. What are you talking about? They're like, no, I'm serious. Meditate. Real meditate. Find a soothing, comforting place in your mind and go there. That's what meditation is about. And it was like, and so someone told me, he said, Mike, what's the difference between fucking Fortune 500 captains of industry, fucking major league baseball players, fucking football players, hockey players, they all meditate. Every single one of those guys all have one thing in common. They meditate. And it was like, okay, so if meditation helps them get to their position, I'm not saying it's their success story, but it's a step within that rung of that ladder. The variable. And, yeah. And so you got to get there. So I try, I was like, okay, I'll try to stupid weird shit. And, but let me tell you, it was like the first day that I found God again, because I'd walked away from the church for a long time. I got out, when I got out, I came small town, Granbury. I found a church that one day I was sitting there and it was like, he was fucking speaking to me. Like I was the guy, didn't know the pastor, but I'm the guy the reason why he's talking about like that up there on that stage right now, it fucking hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, I started bawling. I started crying and I approached him later and I'm like, I don't know what, I don't know what this is. This is fucking the weirdest feeling ever. He said, this is divine intervention. This is, this, this is that whole thing of remember you and he's a cool guy. He goes, when people say they found Jesus, Mike, you just found Jesus. And I was like, Oh fuck. Okay. I like this feeling. Um, 
And so you got to stay away from those precursors that get you to those bad places, alcohol, drugs, uh, sedation, you know, any kind of things like that, that, that lower your defense. Yeah. I always say it's alcohol lowers my defense. That's why I don't drink anymore. I drink it occasionally, but I don't drink like I used to. I can't. No, I mean, alcohol doesn't, you know, not a good combination. I can't use, like, I won't use prescription drugs, like hardcore narcotics, like Oxy or something like that, because I can't control how I act on those things. Do you ever experiment with microdosing of mushrooms or anything? No, I don't know. So I have a really good friend who's a, a Delta guy, and he was actually in Black Hawk Down, and he's the guy that got shot, Jim Smith, crashed in Super 6-1. He lives oh. here with me. And, uh, in Granbury? Jim, huh? No, he lives just down the other side in Crescent. But uh, Jim was telling me the same thing. He goes, Mike, I just came back from this thing. I went on the East Coast. I was there with a Green Beret guy, a Navy SEAL, and a fucking PJ, me, and we did this dosing of mushrooms. And I'm like, Jim, don't fucking talk to me about it. Are you crazy? You're fucking, you know, he's like, no, I'm dead serious. Yeah. I've yeah. never felt better in my whole life. Yeah. I've, like, I've heard a lot of guys talk about it. It's, it's really being explored into helping guys with PTS. It really is. Yeah. So it's scary. And I, I haven't ruled it out, but you're the second guy that's told me that. And this is from a really good buddy of mine who's seen a lot of combat too. He's like, I just got back from there. My whole world changed. And it, it really did because he's I mean, a, it has this bad connotation from the seventies and eighties, acid, drugs, you're yeah. a hippie, you're doing that. No, but it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I've heard a lot of positive stuff about it for a lot of people who've seen a lot of stuff, guys with PTS and combat veterans, I'm not a doc or anything, but for what I know is you're just microdosing. You're not doing a massive. No, amount. yeah, he does. Yeah. Small and you're very controlled in bat mess. Yeah. Very atmosphere. controlled in mass and it has an ability. I have a friend, uh, I grew up with him, so he does microdosing, and he says it really helps him. It helps him. Yeah, well, I know it works because Jim is a dick in real life. <laughs> he really is. You got to be a. You got to know him. And, he, yeah. and a lot of people tell me like, "You're friends with that guy," and I'm like, "Yeah." And like that guy's a dick. You don't know who he is or what he's been through. Yeah. He deserves yeah. to be a dick. All right, so just let him be a dick. Let me ask you this: Just start asking some wrap-up questions here. What? Yeah. What do you want your nation to understand about you, men like you, women like you? Not to feel sorry for us. Not to. F I don't want to be a victim. I'm not a victim. This is. I don't want the narrative to switch and to make veterans victimized. Like, oh, we were victimized from. We were told to go over and fight and be this. Oh, you poor little thing. No, we're not victims. Um, we chose to do this. You know, um, I'm a warrior. This is what I was born to do. You're um, doing your job. Yeah, I'm, and I was good at it, and I enjoyed it, and I'd still be doing it if it, if age wouldn't have been a factor. So don't look at me as a victim. Don't put me on a pedestal. I don't like I'm when people say, "Oh, hey, thank you for service." I'm really put off by that. So after every show, I always get everybody who's served and who's a military family to stand up. I say, "Thank you for your service," and I always say, "I can't thank you guys enough." You know, when I meet a vet. It doesn't matter. I meet somebody and they have a you know a hat on or something, or I'm in the airport. I'll go up to them. I'll say, "Hey, sir, thank you for your service." Um, that's the only thing I know how to do to say thank you. I, What's their response? For the most part, it's pretty positive. It's pretty positive. Sh shocked, surprising. But like you, you like you said that you pay attention to people's bodies and have things like that. But what's what do you notice about their demeanor when you say that though? For the most part, pretty grateful, thankful. Really? Sometimes they're embarrassed. Not embarrassed is the word. Shy, like they don't want. They don't want to. They say, don't want the light. They don't want the light. Yeah, they don't want the light. And and I don't ever. Hey, family, come over here. You know, let's go talk to this vet. That's me. Yeah. one on one. 
I say, hey, sir, I noticed you know, you're a veteran. I just want to say thank you for your service. Um, I feel to me personally, I believe that we have a duty as a society, as a nation to remember the people who have put on the uniform and raised their right hand. Because if we don't remember their sacrifice, what is that going to instill in future generations thinking, well, what's the point? You know, I'm going to do all that and no no one gives a shit. I mean, yeah. I feel like we have a duty to to remember that service and sacrifice so we can bring in the new generation of warriors who are going to raise their right hand. The moment we start, forget, we start forgetting our warriors is the day that we lose a country. And so that's where I, that, that's my belief. Obviously I'm very marinated in this world because of what I do yeah. now. But um, so anyhow, that's my thought. On I always it. say a simple thanks or just for me. And I know a lot of my buddies do the same way. It's just, it's, we don't, I don't wear baseball caps that say military Marine. You, this is my office. And so in my office is the only place in the whole house that I have a couple of mementos that are very meaningful Special. to me. Like, the, my pineapple above the street right yeah. there. And then that's my dad's boot camp picture from 1965. And then all of his Marines that he lost and down below, that's the headstone for a memorial for Mike 31, all the Marines that died in Vietnam. Um, but other than that, I got a couple other trinkets around here, but you couldn't tell that I was in the military. Well, a lot of the guys who wear hats, it's funny that you say that because a lot of the guys who wear hats are the Vietnam and Korean guys who are still alive. And yeah, the very few World War II vests that I've met that are barely a handful of them are still alive. But um, uh, the guys who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, like yourself, I wonder if it's a generational thing, but I, you guys don't wear many hats. I usually pick it up um, like I can smell a vet pretty good now because I've been around them so much, especially if I see tattoos on their arms and there's a demeanor about them. I could like the guy served without a doubt. He served and so, yeah. tattoos. I can pick up. I've recognized some of the tattoos, but uh, yeah, I, I wonder if it's a generational thing where, you know, cause I haven't seen guys with hats, but if I see a guy with one arm, one leg, and he's got a U.S. army t-shirt on, I'm like, yeah, okay. that's yeah. You don't have to be a mathematician to do that. Yeah. Figure that one out. I think he served. I'm going to put some, if I had to put some money, you know, but uh, I wonder if it's a generational thing, but, um, I mean, do you have tattoos? I do just one and oh, I, just yeah. one, no sleeves. No. And I didn't, I didn't really want this one. It was a unit tattoo, but I got talked into it from my guys. So they're like, Hey, sir, you gotta do it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> what would you tell, um, but before I ask this question, what was it that you were really good at, Mike? Like you were really good at. Was it firing the gun? Was it patrol? No, I was really good at probably, I think the best thing I was really good at was identifying problems before they became problems. Um, so my, my commanding general had said something about me. He said, Mike is like a vaccination or inoculation walking around. He, he solves it before it becomes an issue. Can you give an so example that, of that? So that was my whole thing where they, you know, I would go out and it, go out in just to different areas and just show up and figure out what problem, because they didn't know a lot of times that they're missing something, like something wasn't jiving and be like, huh, I see, you don't know you have a problem. And so... I was not, I wasn't the guy that was a problem looking for a potential or a solution looking for a problem or a potential solution. I was the other way around. I was always your solution 
You just didn't know you had problems. And for instance, we had these, have you talked about GBOS towers? No. So it's a self-erecting tower and on top of it, they have, a, and they go up about 300 feet. They're communication towers. They look like a huge satellite or a cell phone tower, um, but they got cameras, day and night cameras. You can look around. They're actually, I forgot what GBOS stands for, but, and again, you can look that up. It's G-B-O-S-S. Um, and on this thing, it had a myriad of sensors. One of the sensors was it had a surface track radar. It could track radar on the ground. It could pick up a freaking mouse running across from here to the horizon, 360 degrees around. Well, we weren't using them. All we were using them for is cameras to get a joystick and look like on a laptop and go, hey, what's that over there? Oh, it's a rock. Just switch around. We weren't using them for what their potential really was. So one day I'm looking at it going, what the hell is all that shit? So I pulled the manual out and I started reading it. I'm like, holy shit, this thing can do this and this. So I go to one base and I show up and there's a kid operating the G-Boss. And I'm like, hey, do you know that what this thing can do? And he's like, yeah, sure, look. Pushes button, it zooms in, pushes button, it turns off. I can move the camera around. And I said, no, no, check this out. So we overlay a map of his area. And then real time, start up the ground search radar. So now I can see tracks of people moving around on this overlay Google Earth map of the images. So I can see Habab walking into his hut down the street. And then start tying this stuff in there. So we get a pattern of life. And then I can actually zoom the camera in when something moves over here and do this. And so we start establishing pattern of life. And now I tell him to number the huts, the buildings, letters of whatever he does. We pull a little book and we put it in the computer. So now we know who's lives in each hut. There's five people lives in here, two males, three girls, uh, and there's their names. So when I see you walk in, wait, you're not on my list. Who yeah. the hell are you? Now I can go out and talk to you. And so we start establishing this and we start establishing a more of a deeper pattern of life. So we start figuring out who belongs and who doesn't. Exponentially, everything goes. We start getting more bad guys, arresting more dudes, our lives. We don't lose as many Marines. Um, and, you know, so one of my decorations that I got from that tour was, you know, they he came out and said, my boss gave me a brown star with the V for the stuff that I did. And one of them was, We'll never know the countless lives that, my, you know, Gunnar Mussman had saved because yeah. of this prowlessness of always trying to figure out how we can be better. And this was in right? this was Afghanistan. This was Afghanistan. That's beautiful. Was, we don't want to because you can really get in a simplistic, be marginalized, be very complacent. You're just, hey, I'm winning. Why get better? I'm already good enough. Right. Well, one day, when we always say in combat, you make your own luck. There's no such thing as luck. You make it. Um, By being so prepared. If, yeah, you got to be, you know, we always say in combat, you got to be the best every day. He just got to be lucky once. Right. You got to be perfect every day. It's the whole thing that Jocko says about war. It's the cruelest teacher, but it's the it best is. teacher, but the cruelest teacher. It is the greatest teacher because it is. It's life. On the nth scale, it really is. If you can understand war and then dumb it down, there's nothing that you can do. Be a captain of industry, psh, easy. So this whole process, and that was what it came down to, is 
understanding, yeah, you had to be your best every single day, every minute for those seven months. If you weren't, you were opening a little itty bitty little hole that he could actually get in there and fuck your day up. And, and uh, that's all it took. Remember, he's just got to be lucky once. Yeah. My, my dog's looking at me like, dude, I got to. Yeah. Pee. Mine's over uh, there, my German Shepherd. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what would you tell vets who are trying to? transition trying to find their equilibrium back in in the normal world who are struggling and who are dealing with afghanistan the withdrawal of afghanistan what would you tell them how to find that equilibrium or that balance well it goes back to it was told to me this was told to me was you did your very best you did what you were supposed to do you did you again you did more than you know whatever pick a number from the po certain population don't keep beating yourself up that's that whole uh, we're, we just got to keep beating ourselves. Why? What's the sense? Why do we got to start? Why do we got to keep punishing ourselves? You know, turn, turn that all around and start enjoying it. You deserve it. You really do. You deserve Happiness. to live your, and so in Band of Brothers, there's one, I don't know who said it, if it was Dick Winters or something like that. No, no. So watch that clip. It's called the German General Surrender at the very end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Winters is in the Jeep. Yep. He yep. comes over and asks him, Hey, do Can you I mind speak? if I speak to my troops? Yeah. Great. And speech. he gives that speech. And he says, It's not the whole Shakespeare stuff, you know, for he gives my blood or, you know, whatever. But the general stands in front and says, You know, you have fought with me. You deserve to live the rest of your lives, your eternal lives, or your last your lives in peace. You deserve it. You deserve that to yourself. And that's what Dick is really kind of. Because you wonder what Dick's thinking about Winters, and he's thinking the same thing. Because the one thing that was neat, unique about Dick Winters was he didn't come up with the angry answer. He picked, he listened to everybody that's thing around him and absorbed it, right? And so that's what made him a great leader. I like to share that if I could in my next newsletter. You deserve peace. Yeah, you just. You I like do. to steal that from you if I could. Yeah, absolutely. It's not mine. No, I know, but I like to say that I got it from you because I didn't pick it up. Go a step further, though, and say, not only do you deserve peace, but you're the only one that can provide it to yourself, right? So no one else is going to give it to you. You're the one that's got to give it to yourself. Yeah, not the you're VA. You're just being selfish with it. Nobody else. Nobody. No, you're being. You're the one being stingy and selfish because you have it, and you don't want to give it to yourself. Fuck, partner. I can't help you with that. But and you do deserve it. You do deserve it. You guys do deserve it. Um, and what do you want now, man? What do you want now? at this stage in this moment for you, Mike? Oh, I, I want to live the rest of my life with no conflict, no anger, no hatred. Um, you know, it, it, this the war has changed me in more ways than you can ever imagine. Always, um, there's no way. There's no way you can go through something like that and not be changed. Yeah. It, you would be it, superhuman. It, it's made me understand simple things like it's not my position in this world to pass judgment on anything. So however you want to live your life, that's what I fought for. That's the beauty of it, right? If you call me a baby killer and you spit in my face, you burn my flag, fucking bravo. Nothing more accentuates the aspect of what I did than those acts. Go burn the flag as much as you want. Bravo. I'm not going to do it. 
Does it bother me? Sure it does. It's a very beautiful thing. But to that simple act is the one of the most, again, so the ironic, the irony of it is you're doing something to commemorate what I fought my life for. You have that right. You may not agree with it, but those kind of simple things, like people are upset about whatever teachings and stuff like that. You know, well, uh, what? again, let parents be parents, do what they got to do with their children. If they don't, that's not my position. I'm not going to be a parent to none of those children. Yeah. Mine's pretty good. Do you? Yeah, do me. Be you, live your life, be a good person. And, you know, so I always took, my thing has always been this. Um, some people will say, boy, I want to learn something new every day. Fuck, that's easy. Reopen a book, idiot. But I go a step further is I want to go every day. And I do this. And I and so this has become like a big ritual with me. I try and make a difference in a complete stranger's life every day. That's so beautiful, Mike. How do you do that? Easy. Every something to walking up and seeing that aura or seeing something like I see someone in the supermarket I don't know or a grocery store, H-E-B, whatever, and I, I can tell that they're just having bad times. You can see it. You can see it weighing them down. And I'll walk right up to a total stranger and just, hey, I want to let you know that it's going to be okay. I want to let you know if you need anything, call me. You've seen so much turmoil, so much conflict, yeah. so much I, behavior of guys just heavy with just war and whatever, guilt, guilt yeah. and everything and, that must be so easy for you to pick up oh, walking down the street. And, the, and it would be a sin if I passed without saying, doing anything. Cause that was, that's a gift that was given to me that I learned the hard way yeah. that people are dealing with anxiety or depression or trauma or adversity. And I just walk by because you don't know the power of positive speech of if walking up to someone and saying, you know what? You look very good today. You look great. I just want to let you know that you look fantastic. Nothing well, more. I don't want anything from you. I just want to let you know that you're a special person. Boy. And you're important. That makes a huge difference. It sure does. It sure does. Passing on a little bit of kindness is a great way to to, to live. Every, boy, if we it all could do that. When, and so it heals this. That's the most, For and it's, it goes back and forth. It heals this, and it makes everything else good. So if we had more of those, that would be imperfect. Everybody oh, we, would be walking around doing it. would be a perfect world, man. Well, listen, brother. Yeah. All right. I, we'll end it there. I've got my biscuit here. He's, he's like, dude. Yeah. I've got to go for a walk. He's already on top of me. He usually just stays calm, but right about now, I'm about an hour late on him. He's like, surely you know what time it is. Uh, yeah, she's, I can hear her too. She's in the back. Yeah. All right. Well, like you said, you got my number. If you need I am. Done. I'm going to reach out to you. I'd love to speak to you again. I'd love to stay connected. And I'm going to be in Fredericksburg on November 10th through the 12th performing. I would love for you to be there. Okay. November that's easy. 10th. Yeah, that's not too far away. That's three yeah. hours. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's my. I keep thinking you're near Fredericksburg or near Granbury, but you're not in Granbury right now, are you? No, I'm in Granbury. Oh, okay. okay. Granbury's thirty. We're thirty-five minutes southwest of Fort Worth. Well, maybe, maybe you and Sergeant V can hook up together or something. But I understand if you can't make it. But I would love to stay in contact with you, and I love to have you. No, my wife wants to go to Fredericksburg. We haven't been to Fredericksburg. So I just keep promising her all the time. So that's a good reason to go. Okay. Okay. Listen, I really appreciate you talking. I appreciate your honesty and trust in me. And uh, it's an honor to talk to you. And, and as I yeah. said, thank you for your service, brother. As they say, Doug, in our business, you are doing the heavy lifting now. You're doing the God's work. You're getting the story out. 
you're a position to do that. You know, we have a responsibility to know these stories. As I shared earlier, if we don't know these stories, how the heck can we? It's our exactly. duty as a society to know these stories. And as one guy told me, he says, even if it's just a minuscule of a lift, at least now you know that I know what you've been through and that helps, right? Because yeah. now we know. So when everyone leaves the theater, people who are not connected to military, now we know that they know what they've been through. And now you're not ignorant. You can't say, oh, I didn't know. Now you know. Well, that's why when you tell people that are going through the same thing, they got to talk about it. You got to share a little bit of your pack. Give a little piece of your pack away. And before you know it, it starts lightening a load on your back and it doesn't feel so heavy anymore. Yeah. yeah. The more you talk about it, you give, you're giving other people those pieces. They go forward and it changes their life. So, yeah. These guys, you got to figure this out. Yeah. All right, man. Appreciate right. it, man. Thanks, we'll Doug. be in touch. Thank you. Have a great day and we'll be in touch. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for everything. Thank you.